With that said, um, we are going to continue in our series today uh, called The Invitation. And really what we are looking at as a community is Jesus' invitation for us to be worshipers of him in spirit and in truth. And what we are looking at as over these next multiple weeks is what are the facets of worship? What is it that God has called us to as his people uh, and as a community at Door of Hope? What are the things that we believe are kind of the key components of, of worship, which is, we believe, the eternal occupation of every believer. All people worship all the time, but Jesus makes a distinction between true worship and false worship. And how I defined worship last week is it's not the songs that we sing before and after a service, but worship is whatever it is that you have placed ultimate affection upon in your life. You are what you love. And what is it that you have put upon the throne of your heart? And what I would argue and what the scripture declares uh, and what history has revealed is that the heart that is set upon God is the heart that actually finds the peace that the world so desperately wants. And not just God in ambiguity, but the God of the scriptures who's revealed to us perfectly through his son, Jesus. Jesus said to the woman at the well, I tell you the truth, that the Father is looking for true worshipers, and true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so last week we considered what it means to be a people that worship in spirit and in truth, that we're a people that surrender to Jesus' control. We give ourselves to him. That we find ourselves, uh, that that worship is initiated by the spirit, that it's defined by truth as God has given us the truth of who he is in Christ and through his word, and that it is expressed in love. Well, today what I want us to consider is what does it look like um, as a community of worship how do we worship through witness? Witness is a massive component of the Christian life. Uh, in fact, if we look at the Great Commission, we see again and again, uh, Jesus, the moment he entered into his ministry, what did he begin to do? He went throughout the land and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he pointed to himself as the fulfillment of that. So I want to begin with this really amazing quote from Frederick Beekner from Wishful Thinking, because he gives a, a beautiful depiction of worship, a kind of robust and simple and, and kind of humorous way of saying, he says, to worship God means to serve him. Basically, there are two ways to do it. One way is to do things for him that need to have done, running errands for him, carry messages for him, fight on his side, feed his lambs, and so on. The other way is to do things for him that you need to do. Sing songs for him, create beautiful things for him, give things up for him, tell him what's on your mind and in your heart. In general, rejoice in him and make a fool of yourself for him the way lovers have always made fools of themselves for the one they love. I really love that depiction of worship because the last sentence is really the heart of it all. That our willingness to enter into a life with Christ is dependent upon our, first of all, knowing that we are loved on our worst day. And that it is the love of Christ that compels us. When Jesus gave the command to his disciples to go into all the nations and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to remember all that he had taught them, he was giving that command to those who already loved him. 
And I believe that love alone is the proper motivation for a life of worship, for a life of witness. We need to be a witnessing people. The church is, is a community that exists for the good of those outside of it. And so what I want us to consider today is how is it that we do enter into this command to be witnesses for the gospel of Jesus. And the first thing we need to remember is that we need spirit-filled witness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember Jesus, after his resurrection, he revealed himself to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And right before, we were told that he ascended to be with the right hand of the Father. And he told them the night of his betrayal that it was good that he go back to the Father because he says, if I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. And what else did he say? He says, and then the Spirit of truth comes, he will convict or convince the world of who Jesus is. And how does he do that? He does that through the community of faith. And look what Jesus says to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I just finished a book um, by Michael Green, a New Testament scholar who did an amazing study on evangelism in the early church. And one of the things that he said about evangelism, the key, one of the key ingredients to why was the early church so explosive in its growth, it wasn't just simply the message that they communicated, but it was the power and the authority by which they communicated it. People did not merely hear the gospel, they saw it in action. They were moved to respond. What Michael Green goes on to say is that the church in the West has become too dependent on words alone and not nearly dependent enough upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I, I like to remind us uh, week after week and why we began where we did last week is that it is possible to have right orthodoxy but for it to be dead. And it's also possible to listen to spirits and to be driven by the experiential and it not be the spirit of Jesus. And this is why we need to be a people that are a balance of word and spirit. That witness is the natural outflow of one who has been born again and then is yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to point people to Jesus. So I love this. Michael Green said this about why the early church was so explosive in its evangelism. Because when we think about witness, what are, we, what are we thinking about? I think that a lot of times the moment that you hear the word evangelize or you hear the word witness, your mind goes to a word that isn't even biblical, uh, which is proselytize. I don't like it because it, like, it, sounds, it sounds like prostate. And that, that, I don't know why, that just makes me uncomfortable. It's a very... <laughs> So I, I think, what, what is it about that word? Well, that, that word has a very forceful, it's, it's going out and, and placing upon people this kind of, you have to agree with this. Jesus never forced himself on anyone. He went out, he saw the crowds, they, he said that they were like, he felt that they were like sheep without shepherds. He had compassion on them and he shared with those who were willing to hear and to receive his words. That he didn't, he didn't, 
force himself on anyone. When the young rich ruler came to him and he said, this is what you need to do. And he told him that he needed to sell his belongings and to give it to the poor and to pick up his cross and follow him. It said that the, it says that that young rich ruler actually left sad because he owned much. Jesus did not chase him and said, oh, you want to keep your stuff? Okay, you can do that. He presented to him the truth, and it says that he looked at him and loved him. Jesus, always in love, gave himself fully to the people, but he did not force himself on anyone. And what Michael Green points out in his book around why the early church was so explosive, he says there were men and women of every rank and station in life, of every country in the known world, so convinced that they had discovered the riddle of the universe, so sure that the one true God whom they had come to know that nothing must stand in the way of their passing on this good news to others. They did it by preaching and by personal conversation, by formal discourse an informal testimony by arguing in the synagogue and by chattering in the laundry. What I love about that is it shows something that is key for us to understand as a worshiping community that our, that our worship is played out beautifully in witness. And it's not by you and I going out by ourselves to try to convince people or to force people to believe what we believe. It may begin with the most simple thing that we can do is that if we have met the one who loves us with an everlasting love, who's turned our lives upside down and given us a hope that we never had before, how can we withhold that from those that are hurting and broken and lost? And what we are inviting them into is, is inviting them to come and to meet with the one whom we have met and fallen in love with. And part of that is just the willingness to invite people into your life. And if this is a huge part of your life, this is who you are, this is the center of your existence, then why would you hide that from anyone? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't hide that light, but let it shine. Is there a naturally supernatural reality to us as a community? Are we reflecting the gospel? Because the gospel is best preached when God's people witness to the truth of who Jesus is together as we live out that gospel in communion with God and with one another and with the place in which he's placed us. The reason that the early church exploded is because these early believers had discovered something worth dying for. I just ask you, when you think of the gospel, is it something that you have found that is worth dying for? That is a really heavy question, isn't it? In, a, in Western culture, which everything is driven by self-preservation and what is best for me, have you been so confronted by the love of Christ that there isn't much room for anything but that love to come into our lives and to flow out of our lives? That Jesus says that whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again, but it actually will become a well by which it overflows out of their lives. And I believe this is what the witness is about. It's not about going out and trying to convince people what you believe by forcing them into conversations they don't want to have. It's by living a life so surrendered to Jesus that people see in you something that, they, that is lacking in their lives and the invitation for them to come and participate in that with you. And that's why I've told you, I want you to be praying about who will you invite to come to Christmas Eve? And not just Christmas Eve, who will you invite to come to the church and be a part of a worship service like this where they can experience what it is that you experience? 
And that is, what part are you playing in the proclamation of God's incredible rescue mission toward the world? So we have to be spirit-filled. The early church's effectiveness as a witnessing church was that it was the Holy Spirit driving them into the world. Without the Holy Spirit, the disciples would have never left the upper room. And I think a lot of the reasons that the, that the gospel never leaves the, the church building is because we have not received the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's a lack of yieldedness to what God wants to do in and through our lives. When the Spirit comes in power, we find that our witness becomes that which in Old English they call unction. There's an anointing that comes with it. There's something that becomes compelling. It goes beyond what can be explained by reason. And so when we think of spirit-filled witness, I think that that witness is played out in three ways. It's witness through language, it's witness through life, and it's witness through love. First of all, witness through language. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Paul says just a little bit earlier in, uh, in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, we preach Christ crucified. Notice he doesn't say I preach Christ crucified. He says we preach Christ crucified. Here he gives us the insight that that preaching in order for it to be effective must be guided by the spirit, illuminated by the spirit, infused with the spirit, that it has to be anointed, driven by something that goes beyond human reason or explanation. One of the great issues that we are confronted with in the church today is that we are no longer confident in the spirits working and have put our hopes and our expectation upon the learnedness of the world in which we live. And yet has the world offered us a way of living that has created any more freedom than what is presented to us in the gospel? I would argue that what the world presents offers us the exact opposite of freedom. That what it actually creates is a deep, deep, deep restlessness that is consistently driven by this idea that whatever it is we give our hearts to fully, what we discover after we have fully tasted it and enjoyed it for the amount of time that we enjoyed it for, that it actually ends up leaving us incredibly empty. The words in which we communicate are words that are foolishness, we are told, to those that are outside of the faith. And that is the word of the cross. And the cross is foolishness to those that are lost. Why? Because the world continues to tell the lost that they are their own salvation, that they are their own God, that they have the ability to be all that they want to be if they just put their heart and mind to it. You know, it's fascinating that that message isn't very effective in places like India. And yet even there, false gospels enter in all the time and one of the fastest growing movements in third world countries is actually a prosperity gospel that promises all the relief that the world offers if they but trust in Jesus and give them their money, whatever little money they have. 
No, the world system does not offer us the answer. The gospel and the upside down kingdom of Jesus, which is foolishness to those that are outside of the faith, because what it declares is that humanity is far more sinful, broken, and impotent than it is willing to admit. This is what we call sin, and sin is exceedingly sinful. That is, it blinds us to itself because it keeps us in this constant state of, of restlessness. And we think, if I get this thing, then I will be happy. Then I will have enough. Then I will reach whatever it is that it is. But it never is that thing, is it? And this is why the gospel comes in and says, no, the problem is, is that if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to experience freedom, you've got to put your trust in me. And what Jesus says is you're putting your trust not only in me, not me as a teacher 2,000 years ago, but myself as the one who actually entered into the human predicament and took on human sin into myself in such a way that I was able to free you from it by dying the death that you all deserve. And what this does is it offends modern sensibilities because it challenges our idea that we can be whatever we want if we just had a little more willpower, if we could just get this thing or get this in line, then we would be somehow happy. But it's not what, how it works. And what the gospel presents is an upside down reality, that it's not about our ability to reach God in our effort. It's about God's willingness to enter into our brokenness and meet us in our impotence. This is the beauty of the gospel because it says that no matter how deep our sin goes, Jesus' love goes deeper still. But when Jesus presents the free gift of salvation for anyone that puts their trust in him, what you have to accept is your helplessness and that you need help. And this is why we preach Christ crucified because the cross is an offense to those that are perishing because the cross declares you put Jesus there along with everyone else. And it is through sin that God himself had to die so that we as people could be saved. Now the power of this gospel is that it's simple and our language matters and what we believe must be communicated through words. Isn't that sort of the essence of relationship is communication? Our ability to commune with anyone, to know anyone is dependent upon language. It's the thing that makes us unique is the kind of elaborate, detailed language, our ability to express our thoughts, our dreams, the creativity of our language. But language is also something that continues to degenerate. Words no longer matter the same way that they once mattered. It makes it difficult in our current context when the average person that graduates from college never reads another book in their life right now in American culture. You guys know that? 75% of those that graduate from university never read another book statistically. That's really alarming when we have such a large old book to read. The Bible Project is not the answer to that. Tim would be the first to say, well, you don't replace the word with, he's like, I love what we were just at a prayer retreat together. And he's like, he goes, I make cartoons about the Bible. That was like, he just, that's, I'm like, you can't really say it like that. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable uh, insight into the scriptures, but it's meant to actually help increase our understanding of those scriptures as we spend time with them. The word of God is living as the spirit of God illuminates that word and it gives us our message and nothing will provoke 
the desire to be in the word more than beginning to be the witness that God has called us. That's why I always say like, you don't wait until you know everything to share the gospel because you'll actually never know everything. And you'll never feel adequate. And that's why the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it and so deep that a theologian can drown in it. We need to be a people that recognize that the main thing that we do when we meet Jesus is we do what the woman on the well did. She began to share immediately after meeting him. She said, come and meet the man that told me everything I have ever done. When Nathaniel met Jesus, the first thing he did was go and tell the other disciples, come and meet the man who, who I believe is the Messiah. Come, come and see. Come and meet him. And this is the MO even in the early church is that they had been revolutionized not by an ideology but by meeting the living Christ. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's why this message, as Robert Jensen said, all agree that the church is a community of, of a message. That what we live for and what holds us together is not an ethic, it's not the golden rule, it's not the Sermon on the Mount. Nor are we to live for a political agenda from the left or from the right. Nor are we to be some kind of celebratory praxis. What Jensen goes on to say is we live for and what holds us together is rather a piece of alleged news. A message that is thought to be so important that it must be passed on. You know, what I think is so powerful about this idea of that witness through language requires the illumination and the instruction of the spirit. But as, as we think about that, we need to understand that God himself is the one who does the saving. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. And so, well, like, why do we need to witness then? Because the means by which he is lifted up and the means by which he draws people to himself by his spirit is through us as conduits of his spirit. This is why it says in Romans chapter 10, it says, what does it say that the word is near you? It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If we declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which is to say you are not what? Lord. It's a surrender of control. What else is it to say Jesus is Lord is to say that he is what? Alive. And if he's alive, then he conquered death. And then if we're talking about this Jesus, we're not talking about a guy who lived a long time ago and gave us some good teachings. We are talking about the present Christ who conquered sin, who is the creator of the world, become flesh, the incarnation, God in human form, entering into human brokenness, his creation, the creator becomes creature that he might actually redeem and restore rebellious creatures like you and I. He did it through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of his spirit to all who place their faith in him. The gospel is not hard to declare. Maybe it's harder to believe. And the question is, is do you believe? Because even faith itself is a gift from Christ. And maybe the most honest prayer that the church needs to bring forth is, the, I think, the most honest prayer any time we pray, which is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He loves you. And if we believe in the depths of our being that Jesus really is everything that he said he is and that he died for us and he loves us and he gave himself for us and we have had our lives transformed by that gospel, how can we not talk about it? The first thing that happened when I came to faith is I began to tell people about it. And you know why it was so formative for me? I believe witness is one of the best means of discipleship. Because when I began to share my faith, I immediately saw my inadequacy and in understanding 
how much I needed to be in scripture, how much more I needed to pray, how much I needed a community of faith around me. As I entered into witness, I also began to see God's supernatural work in other people. I remember I was like, I'd only been a believer for about eight months, and I was working on a record with this producer who was going through a really painful divorce. And I just began to share the gospel with him. And before we knew it, we were working on the record, and one night he just says, I want to pray to receive Jesus. And I actually didn't know how to do it. And I was like, uh, sweet. Well, what is, you know, I'm going to say it, and I'm still not sure it's even working for me. You say it, and then maybe I'll say what you said after you're done saying it. <laughs> so, I mean, it was that, like, all I knew is that I had met Jesus and that excitability. But, you know, I also experienced what Jesus said is a huge part of discipleship, which is the suffering that comes with following after him. Because I had a lot of people reject my friendship the moment I came to Christ. I lost friends. I made friends. And all of it, what I had is Jesus and it brought transformation to every arena of my life. Over time, it wasn't overnight. And I think that this witness through language is so important. The message that we communicate is simple. We preach Christ crucified. We preach a God who loves humanity and is not content to exist without us. That sin is an issue and it's blinded us to God. But that God has done something about sin through the sending of his son. And he, in, he gives an open hand. He knocks at the door. Will you say yes to him? Does your life witness to that reality? And that's why we can't just have a message of words, but our witness is also through life itself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light into his wonderful light one of the things that I think is really important for the church to recapture is the priesthood of all believers and the witness of our life that is that that our words um, need to be spirit filled and spirit empowered but that same spirit also brings transformation to the way that we live he wants to actually make the living Christ known through our lives, not only in our life, but through our lives as well. And so there's a lot of question around what does it mean to be a holy people? First of all, look at this. He says, you are a chosen people. That does not mean that he chose you and rejected them. That means that he chose you, that he can reach them through you. Secondly, he says, you're a royal priesthood. The priesthood were representatives of God to the people and for the people to God. And that's exactly what each one of us as believers have the ability to do. That's why I invite you to come and pray with me. Because you, have, you are a part of the priest. Christ is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The church is the body of Christ. We actually participate in his priesthood by the power of his spirit when we actually intercede on behalf of our friends and in the world that is lost when we pray to God we are actually drawing on divine power we need we need a witness that is spirit empowered that not only comes to people in words but it's words that are that are backed by lives that truly represent and reflect Christ now what we often do when we talk about the priesthood of God and we talk about what it means to be a holy people is that we immediately turn holiness into pure ethics. Holiness then becomes, it's about you doing this thing and this thing and this thing and no longer doing this thing, this thing, or this thing. 
But that's not what holiness primarily is about. Holiness is about being dedicated to God's purposes and plans, which means you will be separated in some ways from the world in which you live, but you're still a part of that world and you're still to give yourself to be poured out for that world under a new ruler. <laughs> and that is under Jesus's kingship. And so when we think about holiness, it's not about you being perfect. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What do you think he means by that? Do you think it means, because whatever your definition of purity is, probably varies from the person next to you or behind you or in front of you. For some of you, purity is defined by very specific ethical convictions. I don't watch this kind of movie. I don't swear I don't do this or that thing that is not what is meant by the pure of heart think of purity in this term you can have pure wine and it not be good wine I've had it (laughs) what what purity is 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 being I think a better way of framing it is being single-minded it's being a whole life that is dependent upon Christ listen Jesus has saved you from sin but he has not unfortunately saved you from sinning in other words everything we do we are forgiven fully our sins have been forgiven past present and future but we live in a cosmos that is infected with sin in this age of grace now there is a promise that there will be a day when the best is yet to come and that is that we will receive new bodies and that sin will no longer be a part of our understanding of the world I don't, I don't believe that we'll forget what it was. I don't Because if we were to forget, then Jesus' wounds would not make any sense to us in the next kingdom, which will be a constant reminder of what it cost for God to be with us. It's free for us, but it was costly for God. But I think of the, this reality right now is that even the best we do in the power of the Spirit is still ultimately mixture. So to be a holy people, to be a priesthood, is not to be, not to be sinless, but it's to be totally dependent upon the one who is, Christ himself. And the more yielded to him, the more he is able by his Spirit to work in and through us so that people, in spite of our brokenness, begin to see Jesus in us. One of the, the powerful things about uh, my wife's testimony, Darcy, and by the way, pray for Darcy. She has the opportunity this week for the Palau's um, have asked her to come and share her testimony uh, at this, uh, this big tea for women downtown at the, at the Hilton. And I know she's feeling the spiritual attack and on being asked to share her story, but it's an awesome story. She's sharing her testimony. She's being a witness. And you can pray that that witness is strong and that people experience and meet Jesus through it. But one of the things that she will share that's so, so beautiful is that, that I was being the annoying, like trying to figure out my faith purely from an intellectual side, and I would try to convince her to believe what I believed, which is not very effective when my life had not yet been transformed with the same sort of yieldedness as I was intellectually yielding. And it wasn't until I had a, a, a real surrender that she began to see a legitimate difference, that the testimony and the life were beginning to match up a little bit more. But it was actually through the witness of a group of women, and the way that she always describes it is that they had a light in them that was different. Something that she wanted, but she couldn't 
put her finger on what it was, but there was a peace, there was a, there was a gentleness, there was, there was a, a picture of Jesus' agape love that kind of drew her in. And she said, I want what they have. I believe that when we as a community of faith live out the call to be witnesses, that the gospel we proclaim is reflected by the fact that we are yielded to King Jesus. And this is all I'm gonna say about that. I believe a holy life is a life that, is, that fully gives Jesus the right to be himself in and through us. And what that means is that it's not you giving him your bad parts so that he can help you get over it. It's not about you giving him your good parts so that he can use it. It's about giving him your whole self, which includes the really lame, and if you're like me, the kind of okay. He wants the glitches, he wants the good things, he wants your smarts, and he wants your stupidity. He wants your sin, he wants you, so that he can begin to reshape you in his likeness. Holiness is the surrender of the whole self to King Jesus, mixture and all. It's a powerful picture of the gospel. It's very different than, oh, I'm holy when I stop swearing. Like, you might be far from holiness uh, and not swearing and be swearing and be closer to holiness than you think. The question is, is are you yielded to King Jesus? Will it affect your ethics? Of course it will. Because he's a king in a kingdom, and that kingdom has rule. But that rule is driven by love, and love is the fulfillment of the law, which brings me to the last reality, which is witness through love. You see, I think when we don't release the our control of our lives, what we're doing, and I, love, I, I really like uh, how Dag, Dag Hammerskold, who wrote one of my favorite um, books called uh, Markings, which is a collection of his his, I think his journals that were edited and translated by T.S. Eliot after his death, he said, I feel like this is such a great capture of what's wrong with why, why we're not experiencing the power of the Spirit and why our witness is so weak. He says, he who wants to keep his garden tidy does not receive a plot for weeds. And I, I love that. There's just like, you don't, you don't have a garden and you're like, in, in order to keep the garden growing beautifully, we should just create this corner so that's where the weeds can grow. That's not how it works. You know, it's, it's, Lord, help me. I yield everything to you. You show me where things need to be uprooted. You show me where things need to be planted. I am given to you. And the way that that witness is played out is through love. And that love is not something that you can manufacture. Look what it says in John 13, 34. Jesus said, this is the key. This is the first step in evangelism. This is the first step in introducing the world to me. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what's problematic about this verse and our understanding of it is that we define love from a very human side, a very human angle. And there's a, there's a powerful book that's kind of the seminal book on, the, on this topic written by a Catholic named Anders, or I think, I think he's a Lutheran, Anders Nygren, uh, and it was called Eros and Agape. And what he said is most, we, most of us function, all of us really function, from the side of Eros, a, self, a self-referential kind of love, a love that is contingent upon the, the object of our love being able to give us what we want, 
or what we think we need. It's a very possessive love. But the agape love is something that is truly supernatural. It is not manufactured, nor can it be copied. Um, that we see elements of it because we're made in the image of God. So it's possible to see agape, little glimpses of it. It's anywhere where you see grace, one-way love, a love that's not dependent upon what we can re receive in return, but a love that comes to the, comes to the unlovely, not because, not because it can get something out of it, but because it's its nature to love. And that kind of love is, is truly a, a reflection of, of what it be, means, means to be made in the image of God. But because that image is marred, it requires for it to be fully recognized and revealed, it requires a supernatural impartation. And this is why it says in Romans 5, it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love that comes to us from God through Jesus by the, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit is a love that, that says, I love you on your worst day. I'm crazy about you. But it's not just that. It's a love that actually is creative in its capacity, that it creates in us a capacity to love with that same kind of love back, a love that can be given back to God and be given to others. And that's what happens when there's a yieldedness is that, is that this, this reality is that when the bride of Christ, when the church begins to actually function as it's meant to function, is that we as a holy people means that we are people that are so dedicated to Jesus that we're able to enter into one another's sin and brokenness and, and difficulties and sufferings in a way that, that that the world sees that there is something very different about the way that these people function and deal with the realities of human life. That there's something actually supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural about the way that we exist together as a community. That they don't seem to be judgmental, they seem to be the opposite of that, is that there's a continual invitation into grace and that that love is a love that's loved so deeply that it's not content to leave it as it is. That we're able, because we know that we're loved by God and by one another, to be able to call people up out of the holes that we've all put ourselves in. That we become truly a family that recognizes that that human existence is extremely difficult and this is why we need Jesus and this is why we need grace every moment of every day. The witness through love is something that cannot be ignored. You know what made Luis Palau's uh, uh, festival so powerful in Madrid is I realized just how dependent the message was not only on the messenger but on the witnesses that had brought the thousands of non-believers to that festival. And what made the message compelling is that for the thousands of non-believers that were in the crowd, there was thousands upon thousands of people who had been transformed by the gospel. And it was through the witness of their lives combined with the powerful anointed message that came through the messenger, which was Luis, that in that moment, it was the entire body of Christ communicating the authority and the truth of the gospel in such a way that the non-believer was completely unhinged by God's radical love and forgiveness. I just love Luis would again and again say in Spanish, his son stood over my shoulder speaking in um, 
translating for me while I was standing behind Luis Palau. It was so cool. I was standing on the stage off to the side behind Luis Palau as he talked to like something like 25,000 people. And he's speaking over a sea of people and he just kept saying in Spanish, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus loves you. Again and again, it was like the spirit was just pounding into the minds of these people. I love you. Come to me. Come to me. And the community of faith together, witnessing by their very presence there, praying in their minds while the message is being spoken, unified in this desire to see Madrid, which has never experienced a revival in its history, experience for the first time the gospel infiltrating in a way that they have never experienced before. And it was just this beautiful, powerful moment. And to watch, I remember watching as he prayed, this young girl right in the front, and it was like you could see as he invited her to, to pray, it was like just this instant release and just tears began to roll down her face as she said yes to Jesus as Lord. The simple message. Luis Palau said that evangelists are often are often um, picked upon by the church community as being, being individuals with only one message. And he goes, is there another message? And I would totally agree with him. I love the, the great, there's a great story of D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist who, who was approached by another pastor who said, I've heard you give this message 11 times and I can repeat every word. And, and D.L. Moody looked at the pastor and he said, I've heard you give 11 different messages and I don't remember anything. <laughs> We're not called to preach a new message called to introduce people to the king who's present and he's the same king today and tomorrow the same king yesterday today and tomorrow and his grace is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow and the gospel that we present is come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest and that message if that's your message you've experienced the rest of Jesus if you want to come alive, reawaken to the goodness of the gospel, stop holding it in. Because when you hold it in and you don't share it, it goes bad. It begins to spoil. It gets stale. Any relationship requires continual investment. Anyone that's been married for any length of time knows how much investment is required to keep romance and love and excitement alive. It requires time. It requires energy. It requires yieldedness to one another. It requires unbelievable amounts of grace. It requires a love that believes all things and hopes all things, and desires all things. You guys, Jesus loves you and he wants to love through you. If you know him, stop hiding him. Bring it into the light. Invite people to come. May the world experience the gospel through this community as we witness as a part of our worship. Amen? Let's pray.